And welcome back. It says, I've been enlightened by your teachings, and I've been teaching, preaching, design law at my church. Besides Ellen White, I am wondering what speakers you listen to and authors you read that have helped you develop your design law ideas. Thank you kindly. Um, so number one, of course, is scripture. Okay, so the Bible and Ellen White's writings always point back to the Bible, so um, that has to be number one. And, and in my residency, I spent lots and lots of time uh, studying the scriptures to identify the principles for mental health and well-being and ultimately the, the principles of God's design law, the principles of love, all found in scripture. But certainly Ellen White has also been a very powerful influence, and I use her quotations because I think she has great insights that are consistent with scripture. But then there's one other human person that I think never used, as far as I I've ever known used the terminology design law, but used and applied the principles, it was Graham Maxwell. So Graham Maxwell, if you listen to him, consistently made a distinction between rules that require authoritarian enforcement versus like the laws of health. And he would give laws of health examples and dentistry examples and other things, which are all design law examples. And, and he consistently drew this distinction between the creator who, who, um, who's government operates upon those larger principles to a dictator, uh, even though he didn't use those types of, uh, of terminology. So I think you will find these principles very lovely uh, and in, in Graham's materials. Let's see, Revelation 13 and 17, B, sequel, governments, etc. Knowing this uh, brings a sense of hopelessness for the immediate future. It has been said Christians bring it on themselves by teaching end-time message of doom, which uh, then leads to to its out-of-my-control, so there's nothing I can do about it uh, mindset. Um, when evil is presented, example, local councils or schools, um, there's nothing I can do kind of thing. I'm helpless. Uh, any suggestions on how to push back on these evils that are attempting to normalize perversion? Uh, is this also part of the ecumenical movement, accept all, etc.? So we said well, it's kind of hopeless. I guess it depends on where you're putting your hope. If your hope is in the betterment of human governments, making a better society for us to live in, then it's hopeless. Jesus said, my kingdoms are not of this world. And the Bible's very clear that as we get closer to Christ, the human governments are going to get more and more corrupt and more and more unjust. And so if you're looking for human governments and councils to give you hope, then it's pretty hopeless. And that's why we are to fix our eyes on the Sanhedrin. No. <laughs> no. Fix our eyes on Christ. Okay? And so, and Jesus, when he described many of these same events, he says, when you see these things happening, lift up your head and rejoice because your redemption is drawing near. And so, and he uses another metaphor about these events coming, and that's a woman in labor. And if, uh, and if you, um, I, don't, I don't know if a, if a woman wrote this or a man, but if you or your spouse, uh, um, we're pregnant, and, and, uh, and that six months, eight, eight months, uh, eight and a half months, uh, you know, coming up to that term date, do you, do you uh, anticipate it's going to be a fun experience? <laughs> or, or will it be uncomfortable? Will it be a little bit of a tribulation? A little bit painful? Is that, is that true? Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. And as it, as it approached, and you recognize the, the, the tribulation of the labor, because Jesus, Jesus actually used the, as a woman labor as, as an example. Okay. Do you then to begin pray, Lord, uh, can I have another nine months before I deliver this baby? <laughs> can I just stay pregnant for another nine months, please? Can I put this off? Can we delay it a little while? Do, do you pray for that? No. no, you don't. Do you go in with distress, even though you know it's going to be distressing? Or do you go in when, when the labor pains start? Do you actually get excited with joy? 
Yes. Why? Why do you get excited with joy knowing it's going to be painful? Redemption draws nigh. Because you know it's called delivery. Okay? <laughs> and you're going to have joy at the end, right? Okay? And so when we see these labor pains, and when a woman goes into labor, are the pains, the very first one, the worst? Or do they get more rapid, get closer together, and more intense until delivery? And then there's the relief of pain and joy. Okay? And that's what Jesus is describing. As we approach the end, it's going to get more intense and more rapid, these, these, these trials and tribulations. But if we're focused only on the pain, it's pretty scary. If we're focusing on the, what it's leading to, it's leading to delivery. We're going to be delivered from this world of sin into a world of eternal peace and joy. And so we focus on the delivery, not the process only. But there are occasional news reports that will come out. I want you to imagine this. Typically of someone who's a, a little bit, um, you know, size-challenged, uh, who was pregnant and uh, ended up in the ER with abdominal cramps and delivered a baby precipitously and didn't know they were pregnant. <laughs> There's an occasional story about this. Ha- ha- imagine that case. You're in labor and you don't even know you're pregnant. Now, is there the anticipatory joy in that or is it only terror and fear? <laughs> uh, I'm having something rip my guts apart. Okay? And that's what it's going to be like for those who don't have their eyes fixed on Christ and don't have a Bible foundation. When these things come upon them, it's going to be only terror and dread. Okay. Uh, I'm a retired pastor and have been favorably impressed over the years by Dr. Jennings' approach to Scripture and like the late, and like the late Dr. Graham Maxwell, uh, how he exalts God's loving character. Um, my question is simple. Do I have permission to use his materials in sermon preparation? I have been tremendously blessed and want to spread the blessings to our congregation here in the UK. And, and the answer, of course, is yes. Our materials are free for sharing. Yes. I live in the UK now. Where is he? I, I don't know where, but I have an email. If you come up afterwards, I'll give you his email, and you can email. We have a visitor from the UK today. Hey, how about that, guys? Yes. Yes. All right, in last week's lesson, so come up after, I'll give you his email, and you can email him. Awesome. Okay? Uh, in last week's lesson, you listed the seven powers of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah 11 as wisdom, understanding, discernment, power, knowledge, and fear. Um, regarding on verse 3 and 4, we see judgment mentioned twice. Isaiah 4, 4 speaks of the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Isn't the spirit of judgment the seventh power, um, making use of the six powers? And so let's read, um, and it's always good description, read. And so we'll read 11 through 4, because that was what was uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It says, there shall, and we will read, um, I'll do the NIV, but I will tell you, I did this, because this question came in early, in 10 different versions, and they all read essentially the same. Okay? Uh, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, uh, from his roots, a branch. He will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And that's number one, Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of truth and love. So he will have a demeanor and heart attitude of truth and love. That's the first of the seven spirits. Uh, He will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding and of counsel and of power and of knowledge of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. That's all reverence. It's not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of all reverence. Those are the seven eyes on the lamb or the seven spirits of the Lord. Okay. He will, and that's, that's verse one and two. Here's verse three. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. Here's verse 4. 
But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decision for the, uh, decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with his rod, the rod of his mouth, the rod of his mouth. The rider in Revelation comes out with a sword out of his mouth. What, what do you think that, what comes out of the mouth? Word. The word, and, 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 and God's word is a sword that, that, that severs, okay? So this is just the word of truth that's coming here, that the righteous lamb speaks always, okay? But he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So I didn't find anything in here about a spirit of justice or a spirit of judgment. It's just not in the text. So, no, I, I don't think that's the case. What I think is the case is the seven spirits give him the ability to make accurate diagnosis and accurate therapeutic interventions, which would be what is described here, speaking the truth and applying the truth for the purposes of salvation, which is the biblical definition of God, implying his judgments to the circumstance. What's wrong? What needs to be done in order to fix it? That's God's judgment. In, Judge, in Judges chapter 20, the Israelites seek God's counsel on how they should attack the Benjamin, Benjaminite, Benjamites. Um, the first two times, he gives them the instructions, but they still lose. Do we know why this is? I have been, it has been suggested that it might have been that they did not seek God's counsel in the right way. I'm wondering if I am missing some deeper meaning. I haven't actually researched this particular, but this is a great story for you to take and go, huh. I'd like to know about this. So I think what I'll do is I will study into the context what was going on at the time, uh, read all the verses around it, get several Bible commentaries, perhaps read in uh, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets or Prophets and Kings, and, and, uh, and, uh, and do your own research and come up to your own conclusion, because I've never actually researched this question. There are tensions in our home regarding diet. Never diet. I'll just tell you right now, never diet. <laughs> It's a rule. Never diet. Why do you never diet? Because diets end. And when diets end, you go back to the old way and you end up, end up worse than you were. So make lifestyle changes yes. and live, live healthier lifestyles. But don't diet. Okay? But that's not what they meant. I'm making a little fun here on the word. Uh, there, there are tensions in our home regarding diet. Of course, we need to leave other, each other free to choose. How should this all play out in a family where a parent's choices can influence children and the agreed lifestyle for the children? I wish there was unity. Well, there's a lot I have to read into this, but I will tell you, um, we don't leave children free to select their diet. They might eat only candy. I know I would have grown up. It would have been candy and junk food and candy and junk food and candy and junk food. That's all I would have eaten growing up, okay? I had to have parents actually discipline and say, you can't have your dessert until you've eaten. Uh, and then there were often battles with my mother, as she'll tell you. As, as er, before, before I could even really speak words, I was battling over what I was going to eat, okay? Okay, you don't have to say it, Mom. You don't have to say it. Um, but no, so, so these things are, but parents who love their children will um, make decisions. But often within the context, the parents can, can, can craft a, a wide boundary of foods within that the children then can make choices amongst. But there are certain things the parents will decide, nope, that's not on the menu. We don't eat those things in our home, whatever those things might be. And that's for the parents to decide. But within the, you can give the kids choices. But I'm getting the impression that maybe there's disagreement among the parents. That's what I'm getting here. I disagree on the parents. Um, my view, I grew up in a home in which my mother, Christian, took us to church. My dad, not Christian, didn't go to church. My mother lived a healthy lifestyle. My dad ate all kinds of things and smoked. 
And, uh, and we went to church on Sabbath and then went to grandma's house on Sabbath afternoon. So until sunset, because dad was home watching football. <laughs> and we didn't want to have that exposure on Sabbath. Mom didn't want one to protect us. So mom did a lot of things to, to uh, uh, apart from dad, to protect the kids from an influence that she didn't believe was going to be helpful for him. I am very thankful to my mother for the way she raised me and the choices that she made. Uh, it, it was clear to me, though, and, and, and my father was not antagonistic towards that. He, he didn't agree with it, but if you ever asked him, he said, you go with your mother. It was an agreement they had with the kids, and he didn't do it for himself, but he agreed the kids would be raised that way. So I would tell you, first and foremost, you and your spouse need to have an agreement. Whether you, that you do it together or not for your own personal self is not the question. It's whether you agree, you need to have agreement on what you apply to the kids. That's what's important. That the, uh, and you can say it, and let's, let's, let's take this even outside the realm of Christianity. Most non-Christians, or at least non-Adventist, okay, let me put it that way, non-Adventist, probably have occasional alcohol in their home, and they drink. But all of them that I know, their kids can't drink. <laughs> okay, I don't know any of the, 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 the non-Adventist Christians who drink themselves let their kids drink. Or caffeine. I know many, even Adventists, who have caffeine, but they don't, they, the kids, get, they don't get to drink coffee every morning. It's something that you're told, that's for adults, you have to wait until you grow up. So there's ways to handle this where an adult might be able to have some aspect of diet that children can't have because their bodies are changing, they're growing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I remember, you know, kids took a daily multi-children's vitamin. The adults didn't take the daily multi-children's vitamin. So there's lots of things you can do different. So I would encourage, but the first principle here is that you and your spouse have to come to harmony on what you're going to do within the home on how you're dealing with the kids. In John 14, 2, Jesus tells the disciples that his father's house has many rooms. Does this mean that he remembers what's in hev- what heaven looks like? If that were true, uh, would that not give Jesus an advantage? Interesting question. First off, um, this is where, again, it really starts by your base premise. In my father's house are many rooms. It actually doesn't say that. A better translation from the Greek is, in my father's house are many dwelling places there. Dwelling places, not rooms. Dwelling places. Hmm. Now that opens up a whole list of possibilities. If you're... In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And it go down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. He made his dwelling. How did he make his dwelling with us? Did he build a temple in Jerusalem as his dwelling? When, he, when the Word became flesh? When the Word became flesh and made his dwelling with us, did he build a three-bedroom condo? He didn't have a place to lay his head. But he made his dwelling with us. His body. He lived in my heart and mind. What would you say? Heart and mind. Heart, no. Body. There you go, his body. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. He made his dwelling with us. He dwelt in human flesh. In my father's house are many dwelling places. One possibility is many heavenly bodies from which we will occupy when he comes back and we are raised. Uh, Many heavenly bodies. 
So uh, it is a possibility. I, I think whether that text means that or not, don't we all agree that from 1 Corinthians 15, that this mortal will put on immortality and this corruption will put on incorruption. We will get a heavenly body. It actually says that. Mm-hmm. A heavenly body. Yeah. Maybe those bodies are already prepared for us to dwell in when we get there. Looking forward to the mansions. Right. The mansions is actually an old English term from the 17th century that actually meant a dwelling place. It wasn't something high built on the hill. It was just a traveling, when you were traveling along the road in, in the old time, there were no, there were no hotels along the road. There were these little huts that were called mansions <laughs> <laughs> that you would dwell in overnight. Going on to your next place. <laughs> there were, uh, yeah, so, okay. All right, so advantage? No, I don't think Jesus had any advantage at all in that regard. Everything he knew, he knew in the same way that any other of God's prophets knew when, when Stephen saw heaven opened up before him and Jesus sitting on the right hand. Um, that, so anything that Jesus knew was his human self, it was because he was revealed to him by his Father. He denied himself access to all his divine prerogatives beforehand. Have you seen the recent ads for a particular beer called Bud Light? I've never heard of it, but no. It says, you ever heard of recent ads for Bud Light and the North Face um, put out? Uh, and if so, what do you think? Um, do you think this is done intentionally, especially the North Face and one because of so forth and so on? It's incredible. And I haven't seen it. But I will tell you, if it's put out by the corporation... Of course it's done intentionally. They spend millions and millions of dollars with high-end ad campaigns. It goes through multiple layers of vetting and, and different things. Anything these big corporations put out, it's done intentionally. So I can answer that even though I haven't seen it. Uh, in COVID, wasn't a conglomerated beast participating? Which beastly power did not participate? Yeah, no, all the powers participated. Yeah, but it was led, led by the godless head, not led by the Roman head. You didn't see the papal powers out there leading the world to do this. It was not read, led by the Islamic head. It was not led by, by the, uh, the uh, pagan. pagan, I was going to say, like uh, you know, the, the American Indian great spirit worshipers. It wasn't led, led by them. It was led by the godless lefties that deny God exists and believe only in evolutionary theory. That's who led the world to do this. That was the godless head. And it was just the, it was the godless head bringing together all the other heads because you got papal support. He didn't lead it, but he supported it. You got Protestant church support. You got support of all the governments of the earth, basically. I saw an article this week that said 73% of the Earth's entire population has received at least one of the COVID jabs. Seventy-three percent of the Earth's population, at least one. So another article that came out this week that said that the more jabs people have had, the more their immune system is impaired, specifically in fighting COVID, and the more vulnerable they are to the spike protein and reinfection. This is, it's not newsflash if you're following my class. I've been telling you that from the beginning. But they would admit it. It's, it's not that they admit it. It's new research has come out in published journals. Yeah. And uh, the people who are in power are not admitting it. But, but again, it's, it's hard. You, know, you look at the systems of the world. When, when Louis Pasteur and John Lister came out with germ theory, 
How is that accepted by the medical establishment? And they denied, they were persecuted, they were vilified, they were name-called, they were, they were uh, threatened with arrest and all kinds of things. But what eventually happened? The truth came out. So the truth typically comes out unless you can absolutely, like North Korea, and then what happens, and this is what's happening in the world. Folks, understand what's happening with wokeism. Wokeism is not about people struggling with interpersonal conflicts of their own identity. It's not about that at all. Don't be deluded to think it's about these poor folks who have these identity problems and we should show compassion. It has nothing to do with that. Those individuals who have real struggles, they're pawns. Less than 1% of 1% of the world struggles with those real problems. They're out there, but they're in an insignificant number compared to the whole population. And that insignificant number has no real political power. Think about um, uh, uh, the, the membership of the Adventist church significantly outnumbers the people struggling with that type of an identity. And do you think the Adventist church could get the airtime and the political support and the corporate support across the landscape of this entire world to support the Adventist agenda? Do you think we could? Understand what's happening it has nothing to do with those individuals. Those individuals are pawns being used for another agenda by corporate elites and, and other major power brokers in this world. And what the agenda is, it's an assault on your mind. It is an assault on objective reality itself. As I said during uh, the, the program, during our class, God is the God of reality. He's the source of truth. All truth leads back to God. Satan is the father of lies. He doesn't want people to, not only, he doesn't want them to know the truth, he doesn't want even to be able to identify truth. He wants to destroy faculties that are sensitive to truth. And if he can destroy faculties that are sensitive to truth, he never has to lie to anybody anymore. And this whole woke ideology is all about getting people to actually think there's no objective reality. There is no male or female. It's all subjective. It's all made up. It's all just personal belief. And, you can, and yet your truth. Your truth is your truth, and mine is mine. This is demonic. It's designed to strip the minds of people from being linked to an objective reality-based God who constructed reality and the laws upon which reality operate. And if you accept that, you end up Thessalonians, given over to a strong delusion to believe a lie. The mind becomes dark and depraved and futile. And that's what's really going on here. And it's happening on multiple layers. It's corporate pickpocketing also. Right. Tim? Yeah. I was thinking during the presentation, how does the uh, prophecy of the king of the north and south dovetail with this? Yeah, so king of the north, king of the south prophecy, the way I understand it, uh, it is a long prophecy showing the battle uh, uh, through history, okay? And the king of the south in, this, in the prophecy is represented symbolically by Egypt. Egypt, Pharaoh. Who is God that I should know him? Represents the forces of godlessness, Okay. The king of the north is represented by Babylon. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar when the three worthies are thrown in the fire? He converts. He recognizes the true God. And what's he do immediately? 
passes a law that anyone who speaks bad about Daniel's God must be thrown in the fire themselves. So that's religious imperialism, which coming down through eventually also becomes Rome, Roman religious imperialism. And so we have these two forces that are both Satan's, godlessness and religious imperialism. And in between, caught in the middle, in the prophecy, are, is the beautiful land. The beautiful land are God's people, the righteous. And Satan has his two forces battling back and forth with God's people in the middle designed to get God's people to pick one of the two sides. That's the whole, to destroy the beautiful land, to destroy the beautiful people. That's the whole goal. And if you look down through history, this has been happening. And the final movements are the king of the south, which is godlessness. And today it would be communism, evolutionism, wokeism, extreme leftism, humanism, scientism, okay? All of these things are part of the king of the South. And they are pushing this agenda of godlessness and it's pushing it for a purpose, guys. This extreme offensive stuff that they're doing in our school systems right now to teach children gross and perverse things. And I can't even say in this class the things that they're actually doing in front of children right now. And the reason they're doing it is because it's king of the South, not trying to win, He's not going to win. He's a pawn. The whole movement is, is, to in, is to incite the king of the north, which is religious imperialism, which is going to unite. You're going to have Islamic conservatives. You're going to have Christian conservatives. You're going to have Catholic conservatives. Uh, you're going to have all these conservatives uh, that value the, the biblical principles of, of sanctity of life and male and female and a God-ordained marriage and so forth and so forth. They're going to unite for the purpose of destroying. So the king of the south attacks the king of the north, and the final movement is the king of the north storms out against him and destroys the king of the south. But the real goal is the beautiful land. And the real goal is to get the Christians in the middle to be so outraged and upset and offended at what's happening on the left that they'll join the king of the north and use the methods of the king of the north to punish the king of the south. That's the real agenda. So this is asking for an explanation of uh, God sends them a strong delusion to believe a lie. Um, I would encourage you, I'm going to give you the short answer, but look up Pharaoh on our search engine and how Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Okay? But how, how God, God sends them strong delusion to believe a lie? God is a source of truth. The Holy Spirit brings truth to people's hearts and minds in ways they can comprehend it, and then they are left free to accept it or reject it. What happens to a heart when they accept truth and apply it? They're transformed. They're, they become soft. The heart of stone is replaced with a tender heart. But what happens to a heart when truth is rejected? It's hardened. Okay? And so um, on any subject matter, any subject matter, not just theological, we go outside right now and we look up at a clear sky and I say to you, the sky is blue and we get a light meter out and we can actually measure the wavelength of light that is being refracted that we are seeing with our eye and we say, and that blue is this particular wavelength. We can do that. It's all scientific. We measure it. And I present that to you. Do you realize you're still free to reject it? You can say, I don't believe that. Okay. You reject the truth on what that is. Anything else you pick is a lie. And that's why they become, because they reject it, says they did not love the truth and thus be saved, and they were given over to strong delusion to believe a lie. So once you reject the truth, the only thing left for your mind to rest upon is a lie. And, and when you are fixed in lies such that truth cannot win you out of the lie, you know what that's called? It's a delusion. A delusion is a fixed false belief that is not amenable to truth. 
And so they become delusional because they did not love the truth and would not be transformed by it. So God does not use power to cause it other than the power of truth revealed that they reject and harden their hearts and their minds. That's what that means. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the love that you have given us and the truth you revealed. And we just pray that you will continue to finish your work in our eyes. Seal us to your kingdom. Seal our hearts and minds and write your name, holy, 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 on our foreheads that we can stand firm in the time that's coming and be lights to the world so that many people caught in the confusion right now will come out of of that system and join with your people. We pray in your holy name. Amen.